Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to New Books in History, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm your host, Douglas Bell. Today, we'll be talking with retired Regents Professor Robert Worcester of Texas A&M University at Corpus Christi. We're talking about his new book, United States Army in the Making of America, From Confederation to Empire, 1775 to 1903 published by the University of Kansas Press. Robert, welcome to the show. Thank you. It's delight- I'm delighted to be here. Um, Robert, um, can you tell us a little bit about your background and how you came to write this book? Sure. Um, well, first, my father was a history professor. He taught for 50 year, over 50 years. And so I grew up on history stories. He never want, really wanted me to become a history professor, but I couldn't do anything else. So that's what I did. Um, anyway, and so I've written a number of books about the army in the 19th century, largely the American West. Uh, and um, But during the 2000 presidential campaign, uh, then Texas governor George, George Bush uh, had, a, had a stump line on his, on his campaign speech that was very popular, uh, and he made fun of then Vice President Al Gore, or criticized Gore, for having allowed the Army to become involved in several activities that we would now call nation building in Somalia, uh, in Haiti, in the Balkans. And Bush vowed that, by golly, he was only going to use the Army to fight and win wars. And that struck me kind of as ahistorical. Um, it's also very ironic, given what Bush did as president. But uh, I, had, in my in my years of studying the army in the 19th century, I knew that they had done a, a lot of things other than fight. Uh, they had served a lot of functions other than in combat, and so I became interested. Uh, not interested enough to write the book immediately, but it was you know it, it made an impression on me, and so I finally did it. Great. It was a really detailed in book, and you could definitely see that in your writing. Um, your book begins by looking at the role of the sort of the nation building as during the War of Independence. Um, in American history, we often think about uh, the militia in the War of Independence. So you can you talk a little bit about um, what the regulars at that time, the Continental Army, were doing for during the War of Independence. Sure. Um, well, uh, despite what we often learn in elementary school, uh, the War of Independence between, the, between America and England was largely a conventional war. That's, it was decided on, by conventional means on conventional battles. And in the tactics of the day, uh, with linear formations, two or three ranks deep, and often bayonet charges, uh, they just favored professional soldiers, that you needed a lot of discipline, brutal discipline in many cases, but you needed a lot of discipline. Uh, and militia had certain value, but that was never the militia's strength. And George Washington recognized that pretty early and always insisted that we need an army like the British Army. We'll call ours the Continental Army. And so that was really the, the, the genesis of the American Revolution Army. Of the, of the American regular army. 
Uh, and on the battlefield, that Continental Army, fighting very much like the British, uh, fought for conventional terms on conventional terms. And uh, again, the militia just didn't have the discipline to necessary to succeed in that environment. Right. So the 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 Continental Army is formed and helps the the Americans defeat Great Britain. Um, and so then now they're trying to form a new nation. So what does what is the desire for a regular army after fighting Great Britain for wanting to quarter soldiers in the colonies? What is the desire to have standing a standing army in the in the colonies after the or the new American nation? I, I think the general recognition among the political elite, at least, was that uh, it was an evil, but a necessary evil. Uh, they had been they had been weaned on the classics. They knew that Julius Caesar had used his army to change the Roman Republic into a Roman Empire. They knew that Oliver Cromwell had used his army to uh, create essentially a military despotism in England. Uh, and they're very afraid of that. They're very concerned about that. But they also came to realize, particularly George Washington and Alexander Hamilton, they came to realize that they needed something more than militia to, to, to meet the needs of the new nation. And so in the, Continental Con- in the, in the uh, Constitutional Convention, uh, there was a considerable debate. Um, and the founders essentially tried to create a balance. Yes, we will allow Congress to create an army, but we will have certainly certain checks and balances that run throughout the American system. Um, for example, um, the president is commander in chief, but the Senate must confirm his officer appointments. Um, you can pass, you can pass you can budget money for the military, but only for two years at a time. Um, you'll have this standing army. At the same time, you'll allow each state to have individual militias. And the idea was to create a balance, to, to reduce the danger of military takeover. And it's worked pretty well for the next 125 years. Yeah. Um, so the... George Washington and Hamilton, the Federalist, these, uh, they had worked pretty hard to get uh, a regular army in the Constitution. So as presidents, George Washington and Adams, the Federalist, and Hamilton is um, in the Washington administration, how did they understand and, and use the regular army in constructing the American nation? Well, they believed that the government should do things. They believed in an activist government. It was a small government, but it was an, they wanted an activist government. And right. because the government so, was so small, they don't have many tools to, to do what they want. And as historian Andrew Caton once put it, that they pretty quickly realized that the regular army was their most flexible uh, resource to use. It, was, it could be moved around. Uh, it, it could do things. And so uh, they saw the great problems of the day as being in the old Northwest. So that's where they sent virtually the entire army. 90% of the army was sent to the old Northwest. They thought that was important because of land. Um, they believed that 
the sale of public land in the old Northwest would would finance the, the new government. And they wanted to make sure that the United States established sovereignty over the area against Indian attacks, against the British, and against American squatters. They don't, they don't <laughs> want those squatters to take the land uh, and, and thus reduce income. And so they sent the army there. Um, this caused some problems because many people in the South thought they had similar problems, Indian attack or threat of Indian attack, Spanish, but the Federalists didn't send the troops there. They sent them to the old Northwest. Uh, and in addition, uh, as the French Revolution becomes increasingly uh, radical, at least in the eyes of the Federalists, uh, the Federalists are, lo are looking for a way to protect ourselves against a possible French assault. And so they add to, they increase the regular army. But in the process, they're very careful to make sure that they appoint overwhelmingly Federalist officers, officers who could be trusted. Uh, I'm sure you recognize, you realize that at the time, the Federalists and the Democratic Republicans didn't trust one another at all. They, they, they just didn't believe the other had any legitimacy. And so a, a three-man committee with George Washington on the committee George Washington and Alexander Hamilton on the committee essentially uh, make sure that when they appoint officers to that newly expanded army, those officers are politically reliable. So the, would you say that the, the early army, regular army was highly politicized? Yes, during this yes, time? it was, it was. Yeah. Um, and um, when Thomas Jefferson becomes president, He'll reverse the process. He'll he'll politicize it, but he'll politicize it for his own party's interests. Uh, and so, understandably, the officers who are appointed in that environment, um, they're much more political than we often uh, think. <laughs> it's, it's a pretty politicized ar army. Yes. Yes. Yeah. So when Jefferson does come into the presidency and he starts appointing new officers. Um, and he was kind of very much against the idea of a regular army um, and much more supportive of, the, of a militia. So how does he go about using the regular army? You're, 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 you're exactly right. Before he was president, <laughs> Thomas Jefferson, uh, uh, in fact, in the summer of 1776, not in the Declaration of Independence, obviously, but he once wrote that standing armies are dangerous to, to liberty. Uh, after he's president, he reverts back to the pre-presidential Thomas Jefferson and is very critical of the army after he's president. But while he's president, it's whether he knew what he was doing or not, it was, it was genius because first, when he, when he becomes president, he and the Republican Army, uh, uh, the Republican Party, uh, reduced the army by about 40%. And guess which officers they try to eliminate as part of that reduction? Well, a lot of the Federalists. Um, and Jefferson's personal secretary, Meriwether Lewis of Lewis and Clark fame. Well, before Lewis goes out west to explore the Louisiana Purchase, 
Uh, Jefferson has him compile a list of all the officers and a number of the questions on the list that that Lewis fills out are their political reliability. <laughs> and so um, um, you know, they, they, they kept some, they kept a lot of Federals because they were almost all Federals, but they tried to reduce Federals. So that's step one. Then um, Jefferson in that reduced army, he sends about half of it to the South, which is Jefferson's political base. And with the army always comes money arsenals, armories, contracts. And so uh, the army can, in, in some cases, be very popular locally. So Jefferson gives, a, a, gives some of that army to, to his political backers. Then he supports something he had opposed much of his adult, much of his uh, time as in, in Washington's cabinet. He now comes out in support of uh, United States military academy to serve his ends, which were number one, he believed very fervently we needed educated engineers and West Point will become the world's, much of the 19th century, the world's preeminent education uh, engineering school. But he also wants a cadre of potential officers free of any Federalist uh, infection. Uh, and so he reduces the army since gets rid of a lot of Federalists sends part of the army to the South, creates West Point. By the end of his administration, he triples the size of the regular army. And guess who he appoints to officer that new army? Republicans. And so he doesn't, he doesn't do away with Federalist influence, but he makes it an institution that he can trust. And so he uses it in Louisiana Purchase it for to occupy the Louisiana, to govern Louisiana in the absence of any civilian authority. And so Jefferson, as president, was very much a pragmatist when it came to the regular army. Yeah. So in becoming, as West Point is, you know, becomes this engineering school and the U.S. expands westward with Louisiana Purchase, the army is building the roads. And is this kind of what you see as part of this nation building? Sure. It's kind of overlooked. Yeah. Yes. Um, um, one of the things the army can do is provide trained engineers, essentially to direct road building, railroad building, canal building. Theoretically, the projects were supposed to have national uh, value. Uh, national, of course, is in the eye of the beholder. Um, but, um, they become particularly in the 1820s, the army in the 1820s and early 1830s, even through Andrew Jackson's administration, the army is used not only to, for national defense, but also for national development, largely infrastructure. Um, um, and ironically, it's secretary of war, then secretary of war, John Calhoun, who will later become a state's writer. It's Secretary of War John Calhoun who uses the army in this fashion uh, most vigorously, because at the time, Calhoun believed in national development, believed in infrastructure, believed that, that the government could, the federal government could do good things to improve American society. And so it's terribly ironic uh, mm -hmm. that Calhoun is, is 
the young John Calhoun, uh, is a big believer in this process. And in the 1850s, of course, John Calhoun will stand for very different values. But mm -hmm. there's the army. Um, and of course, this has some benefits. Engineers, the engineers love it. They've got plenty of things to do. They feel important. But that has a political impact because, well, what if the army, what if the government isn't building a road near you? The government seems to be mm -hmm. privileging certain people over others by where it, where it does these things. And the officers themselves, again, more and more of them are coming from West Point. West Point, by the 1830s, West Point has a virtual monopoly over officer appointments. Uh, and the officers can be very imperious. Uh, they can be downright insulting. Uh, they believe in many cases that they were above the civilians they were supposed to serve. And so that caused, um, caused much jealousy upon, uh, among opponents of the regular army. And so the thing kind of comes full circle that so many officers are serving in these, these internal improvements. Uh, they're resigning like crazy because they can... Uh, they can get better jobs in private industry than they can in the army. In fact, in 1836, 16% of the entire army officer corps resigns in one year. Wow. Uh, and that's obviously a problem that, that needs to be fixed. And so with the, with the administration of Jackson's successor, Martin Van Buren, they strike a deal. The Van Buren minister, Van Buren doesn't really understand the army, but he's a deal maker. And they strike a deal. Uh, we will increase the regular army, but you'll have to take a vow. If you go to West Point, you'll serve eight years, four years at West Point, And then you have to serve four additional years as an officer. Uh, so that's where that came, that tradition came about. Oh, okay. Um, if we could uh, maybe take a step back then. And I was wondering... So Jefferson, he builds up the army, makes it an institution that he can trust, as you said. But the army doesn't perform very well in the War of 1812. Washington is sacked. So what happened to the regular army during this time? Well, first, they were talking too much about politics than, <laughs> than they were uh, military affairs. Um, uh, in fairness, James Madison, a brilliant man wasn't interested in the military. Uh, his Secretary of War, William Eustis, is a disaster. He, he, can't, he can't understand how to oversee military mobilization. Um, um, and there weren't enough of the regulars that, that mm -hmm. they try to expand the army during the War of 1812. It doesn't work. You can't get people to, you can't recruit people in large part because of, pure, of poor bureaucracy. But you're quite right. The first couple of years, the, the army does very badly in the War of 1812. Uh, fortunately, a couple things are going on. Number one, fortunately for the United States, the British are more interested in defeating Napoleon than they are defeating the United States. And so they're never, the British are never sending really large numbers of troops to, 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 to fight the Americans. And then you have the development of this cadre of professional officers who, who begin to assert their authority, who begin to convince people, 
we can't have them. We can't fight as volunteers. You have to have professionals to deal with this problem. And so by the end of the war, the Army does pretty well, you know, particularly in some campaigns in 1814 in Canada, where that's uh, arguably that's it's during that Canadian campaign in 1814 where the, the officer corps looks back to and says, here's when we started to be professionals. Um, um, but so in part, it was this renaissance among some army officers. In part, we were lucky that the British didn't turn their main attention to us. You say then that the War of 1812 was kind of like the, was it maybe the end of the idea of the militia as being useful? No, uh, it's, uh, uh, honestly, it should have been. But the militia tradition holds strong with, mm-hmm. with some reason, um, because the army as a structure is very undemocratic. Uh, it's a hierarchy. And that's not liberty. That's not equality. Um, there's brutal, brutal discipline. Uh, the officers make it virtually impossible for any enlisted personnel to gain commissions. And so it, it, you can understand why so many Americans, particularly in the age of Jackson, where they celebrate the common man, you can understand why many Americans want to hold on to these old traditions, uh, although they weren't realistic. But it's understandable. So the the period after the War of 1812, you call it, and you write about it in your book, as the period of new nationalism. So what was the role of the regular army during this period and how did they contribute to this uh, growing nationalism? Well, I think um, on several, several scores, um, the idea of this new nationalism attributable to David Walker, historian David Walker Howe, uh, is essentially this belief that the government can do good things for the nation. Um, and you use the army, for example, to explore the West. You use the army to help build roads into the West, not only, not only within the interior, but also into the, uh, into the far West, to mm-hmm. Oregon. They talk of having a road to Oregon during the 1820s. It never worked out, but there's talk of it. Um, mm-hmm. You need to occupy this area. You need to prevent British, particularly British tra- fur traders from uh, encroaching upon American fur traders, essentially. Um, you can use the army to help build American industry. Um, and the way they did it is rather ingenious. Um, many leaders recognize that industry and the military have a lot of things in common. Uh, the military wants better weapons. It wants order. Uh, industry wants government contracts, um, and it wants to, the government can help fund thing, the in, fund projects that private industry wouldn't have done without those contracts, um, particularly at their big arsenals at Harper's Ferry and Springfield, Massachusetts. And here you see the government, the, the army or army officers in pretty deliberate fashion trying to shift industry from an emphasis on skilled craftsmen to 
something that the army could depend on a little more, mm-hmm. that would be more productive, that would be more precise, that the army would have more control over. And you can get industry by, by, prom- by giving them contracts if they promise to make public um, the technological progress they've made. And so over mm-hmm. the time, this produces uh, what, what was what the British referred to in 1850 as the American system of manufacturing. And it's largely a result of this cooperation between the military and uh, private industry. Yeah. In, um, in the 1830s, when uh, Andrew Jackson becomes president, he, like Jefferson, was a, a champion of the militia, but he also relied heavily on the regular army to further grow the American empire. So um, what did the regular army do under President Jackson? Well, Jackson talked a lot about the militia. Mm-hmm. He, he, he knew what to say. But in practice, right. Jackson knew from his own personal experience in the War of 1812 that you can't trust him. And <laughs> right. so, so, so Jackson, he's a big talker. But on the other hand, he's very much involved in the same projects that he allows the army to be very much involved in the same projects that Monroe, uh, that John Quincy Adams had them involved in. And then Jackson also wants to use the army to help with Indian removal. Uh, today we call it ethnic cleansing. But mm-hmm. again, that's the tool you have. And so he uses the army in that fashion. Army officers are very much involved in moving tens of thousands of American Indians from the Southwest into Oklahoma. Um, They're indispensable for that project. Uh, And Jackson has kind of, in in many ways, a love-hate relationship with West Point. Uh, Jackson understood we need West Point, but he couldn't help but dabble in West Point. Mm -hmm. That he thought those West Point professors were too hard on the young men there. Uh, that they were they were punishing them too much. That the young, that the cadets need to have a little more freedom, and so a cadet would get bounced. He'd appeal to the president, and he'd be reinstated. Uh, and that caused all sorts of friction. The superintendent, Sylvanius Thayer, resigns in protest to Jackson's doing this. Um, um, and. In the end, there's a in, in 1837, 1838, a terrific attack on West Point, on West Point, often led by Jacksonians, although not personally Andrew Jackson. Uh, and there's a lot of discussion of getting rid of it entirely, uh, but they don't. Yeah, wow. So, as um, is the regular army and you know carrying out ethnic cleansing, we would call it today moving Indians. Um, the regular army is out there on the, on the frontier. So what is their relationship like with other government officials who are responsible for American empire, Indian, the Bureau of Indian Man Affairs? Uh, and what is their relationship like also with the settlers who are out there? Uh, it's a great question. First, the Indian Bureau was originally within the War Department. Uh, everyone could see, look, the, the, you need personnel. You don't have a lot of civilian bureaucracy, so let's use the army to help out. 
Uh, and there, the army, in the end, is always going to do what civilians, what the civilian government wants it to do. That is, move these people aside. Many individual officers wrote eloquently about how this is causing problems. It's inhumane. Uh, they, the army, office, army officers often tried to put themselves between locals on the ground and the Indians, tried to kind of referee things. But in the end, the army's always going to go with what the civilian government wants it to do. But there were a number of thoughtful officers who who complained and protested. Um, again, they often saw them; those officers often saw themselves as above many of the frontier people, of frontier whites, and so there's a lot of antagonism there. On the other hand. Many on the frontier loved it when the army established a local base because it means money, it means jobs, it means contracts. And so there's this, again, uh, it's a mixed relationship. Yeah, yeah. Um, what is the, the role of the, the regular army plays in the Mexican-American War? And so this ex- how did this experience out on the frontier uh, affect how they fought or organized uh, for the Mexican-American War. And also in this war, they acted as an occupation force. So did this you know, frontier experience help or influence what they were doing during this period? Sure. Um, uh, to put things in context, President James K. Polk did not trust the regular army. Hmm. He does not trust them. He believes they're Whigs. He's a Democrat. He believes they're all Whigs. Not entirely true, but that's what he believed. He thought they were not moving quickly enough. Uh, and so there's a real uh, jealousy between the Polk administration and the army. Having said that, um, it's the regular army that wins the early battles of Palo Alto and um along the Texas border. Uh, at the end of the war of Winfield Scott's force that captures Mexico City, about 80% are regular troops. There were a lot of volunteers coming in and out uh, throughout the war, but um, in the end, it's the regular army that that does the lion's share of the fighting. Mm-hmm. Um, as you say, they had a lot of they had a lot of experience occupying areas. Uh, they had a good deal of experience in military government because in the absence of anything else, the army was the government. And so in Mexico, uh, in New Mexico, in California, uh, the army often is the government until um, California, until 1850, uh, in the absence of anything else. And so many officers had done these things all their lives. And so they had a fair amount of experience and they, um, they managed to wait, wait through it. They profess to hate it. They always think are, are asking to be allowed to come home, get me out of here, do something. Uh, but they apparently did a fairly reasonable job in providing government until civilian authority could actually Okay. Uh, what were some of the challenges that the regular army faced in the 1850s during this 
period of growing sectional tensions? Um, well, one thing I should always, I never mention enough, is mm -hmm. that the army's, army's biggest problem throughout the 19th century is desertion. Mm. <laughs> desertion <laughs> is always there. That's always there, but you give me a chance, so I, had, I, I want to mention it. That's their greatest problem. Yeah. Um, having said that, they face a new situation in the 1850s. Uh, um, in the past, there hadn't really, well, just cite the figures. The army, according to the official army figures, mm -hmm. they record 122 engagements with Indians from 1790 to 1849, 122 engagements with Indians mm -hmm. over that nearly half century. Between 1850 and 1859, they report 121 engagements against Indians. Well, so there's yeah. a lot more fighting than there had been. And mm -hmm. they're fighting against different groups of Indians than was traditional. Uh, they're no longer fighting woodland Indians. They're fighting Plains Indians. And, and this causes the army lots of problems. In addition, uh, during James Buchanan's administration, he used the army to essentially assert uh, American sovereignty over Utah. Uh, there's an invasion of Utah by the, not an invasion, occupation of Utah by, by the regular army. Uh, ironically, during the middle of the sectional crisis, there's a call that some people are thinking, well, the army's the only fair, uh, impartial thing we have. We can't figure out where to build a transcontinental railroad. So what do they do? They turn the army and say, find a place. Well, the <laughs> army finds too many places. So that doesn't work either. <laughs> but they, they turn to the army to try to try to deal with this crisis. Mm -hmm. um, during the 1850s, the army becomes increasingly associated with the, the preservation of slavery. Um, and again, think of it from the Army's perspective. They want perspective. They want order. The Army always preserves order. And the preservation of slavery was to preserve order. Uh, and so you have the Army used in Kansas, essentially, uh, in large part, to protect the interests of slavery. Um, um, now, it's not clear how many army officers actually owned slaves. That's a subject that we need more study on. But pretty clearly, institutionally, the army is sympathetic to order. And that means sympathetic to the preservation of slavery. And so during the Civil War, there'll be a lot of, uh, a lot of uh, attacks on the army because of this traditional stance. Hmm. When the the Civil War started, um, do you, do you, how do you think the the split between officers between the North and the South and the regular army did did some of did how did the officers feel about this themselves about maybe their former comrades who are now going to the Confederacy or maybe somebody in the South who maybe has a, a comrade who was from the South but decided to stay for the North? Do they? regard each other as now mortal enemies or as, you know, brothers in arms, but maybe, maybe misguided? Um, occasionally one will use the term treason. Not very mm -hmm. often though. Uh, most, uh, most officers in the end, most officers stuck with the United States, but about 25 mm -hmm. to 
left the army, in many cases, to go fight for the Confederacy. But the internal, there's, again, there are always a few who will mm-hmm. accuse the other side of treason, but most of them don't talk about it much. Most of them mm-hmm. say this is a problem that should go away. We need, we need calm. You rad- there are too many radicals on both sides. Mm-hmm. But in the end, most stay with the United States and mm-hmm. will fight for the United States against the Confederates. So when the Civil War does break out and the in the Union, the regular army is quickly outnumbered by volunteers. So what is the role of the regular army in this big new army during the Civil War period? Well, or what is the role of regular? There, there are some regular regiments that fight. Mm-hmm. They're never numerous enough to make a, a, a real difference in any mm-hmm. individual battle. But, uh, and this is where I'm really lucky because there was uh, um, a book written by Mark Wilson really pointed me in the right direction. Um, his book talks about how that to, to, to make this war happen, to oversee the mobilization, it's largely the Army Quartermaster Corps, uh, the Subsistence Corps, the ordnance department that run things. Uh, they handle most of the money spent in the Civil War. And they're led by professional army bureaucrats. And they do a pretty good job. Um, mm-hmm. um, they're, they, they deal with all sorts of things in addition to producing, just producing the goods, granting the contracts, labor. Um, many of them are quite sensitive about understanding, look, we have an obligation to, to uh, treat our laborers pretty well, many of whom were women, uh, mm-hmm. that these women, a lot of them, their, their, their husbands are off fighting. We can't just turn our backs on these people. We can't fire them. We can't let them go. We've got to kind of fi- make sure to, 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 to allow them work. Uh, and so it's, it's, during the Civil War, where you see the army on a massive scale, really become um, involved in daily lives of, of average Americans. A lot of these workers, war workers, they're working for the army indirectly mm-hmm. because the contracts have been signed by the army. Um, and so you, the regular army doesn't play a decisive role on the battlefield during the war, but mm-hmm. it's very important in uh, mobilizing for that war. Really interesting. Um, So following uh, the Civil War, there's all types of uh, new challenges. So how would you say that the army balances the the demands of demobilization, reconstruction in the South, and the continued presence of uh, Indian wars in the West? Um. Um, reluctantly, <laughs> um, they, um, first they spend a lot too much time, uh, talking about what they had done in the civil war and about who was the first up, up what hill. And there were a lot of bickering among the officers about their, their wartime service. Anyway, um, the gist of your question is a very good one. They're, they're faced with an enormous challenge, uh, because you're reducing the army from over a million to about 50,000 in the span of about 
less than 12 months. Um, and you're dealing with an increasingly uh, problematic uh, frontier, borderlands, where, where fighting between non-Indians and Indi Indians is clearly growing. And then Congress, uh, looking for a way to impose its will over the defeated South, essentially Congress doesn't want to win the war and lose the peace. Uh, Congress uses the army to implement its goals or Congress's goals for the South. It's only the army that can protect former slaves. It's only the army that can protect unionists. If there's going to be any hope of true democratic government in the South, not Democratic Party government, but little d Democrat. If there's any hope of democracy in the, in the post-war South, you've got to have the army there. And the army could do it. There just weren't enough of them. Um, um, it's remarkable how little violence there is between former Confederates and uh, Union soldiers, United States soldiers. Almost none. Uh, but that's the tool, that's the only tool Congress has to implement its will. Uh, most soldiers don't like it. Uh, they don't, they believe they're being used to promote social change. Uh, they don't like it. But most of them do a pretty honest job of at least attempting to referee these differences between former Unionists, former slaves, former Confederates in the South. How did, um, as the Army's partially in the South, working through Reconstruction, what was going on at the West at the same time? And how did this affect Reconstruction? Um, the combat between Native Americans and the Army is increasing, is escalated in the, in the mid and late 1860s. Uh, and the Army is, while it's being asked to reconstruct the South. It's also asked to ensure that non-Indian Western migration continues. Mm -hmm. And in the face of this, it's being cut from 50,000 men to, in the end, about 25,000. And so uh, they don't believe they have enough, enough troops to do everything. Uh, they complain vociferously about it, uh, never to much effect. Um, but at, at the time of Reconstruction, um, about during, I'd say, 1870, about half the army is in the South, about half in the West. As, Recon as Congress loses interest in Reconstruction, more and more troops are sent West. And so by 1877, when Congressional, when, when Reconstruction, when, when Rutherford Hayes is elect, takes office and the army leaves the South, um, um, most office, most soldiers were happy to get away. Um, on the West, they find this continued difficulty of, of on the one hand, they're always going to support expansion. They might complain about it, but in the end, they're always going to support white expansion. Hmm. They might think the expansion is wrong. They might think the Indians are being uh, treated unfairly. Uh, some of them are racist against Indians, but a lot of them express a great deal of sympathy for, for Indians. Um, but in the end, they're always 
going to side with uh, the United States government against him. And this is the time when some of the most famous battles in the West are fought. Uh, George Custer, the little big horn mm-hmm. sort of things. Many of these guys like Custer. Custer was in Texas after the Civil War for a while. They've been stationed in the South for a while. They then are transferred West uh, and they're a lot happier in the West, quite frankly. Um, they have a little more independence. They're not trying to enforce this new type of social justice. Uh, they have a little more freedom. Uh, fewer <laughs> prying eyes are there watching what they're doing. And they, they generally like that. They generally appreciate that. Mm-hmm. Um, what was, how would you characterize the, the regular army of the Gilded Age? And what was its place in American life? That's, that's a really thoughtful question. Um, um, one thing that's clear is that as part of American culture, the army is taking, I would argue, a greater role. You see more books published by officers and by officers' wives. Uh, you see, and the cover of my book is, is an example, a painting uh, uh, um, by, about a mythical uh, army encounter, but the painting by Charles Strayvogel won the national the, the national design award for art in 1900 it stands it's it's in the metropolitan museum today my bunkie um, and i think that's symbolic of this growing role of the regular army in cultural life um, you see officers wives pretty clearly trying to assert their uh, hierarchy over po- over post society um, you see them, the army, again, as it had been in the 1850s, is directing most of the big government works projects in projects in Washington, D.C. It's, it's army officers who are, who are overseeing those processes. Um, the army's still involved in politics. Uh, it's not as politicized as it had been, but Ulysses Grant, former officer. Um, Winfield Scott Hancock, another officer, Democratic nominee for can- for president in 1880. Um, um, you also see during this period, on twice, 1877 and 1879, government, 1879, government shutdowns regarding the army. Congress adjourned without passing army bills twice. And the soldiers, the officers have to borrow money because they're not getting paid for two months. Uh, these are, you know, the government shutdowns we saw in the late 1990s and early 2000s. They had a couple of them in the 1870s regarding the army. And it's largely because many of these Southerners are really mad at the army for having imposed reconstruction on them for so long. And Southerners join Northern Democrats to essentially say, we, 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 will, we will challenge the army and if need be, we will not give them any money. Now, eventually, compromises are worked out. Um, but nonetheless, they're there. Um, the Army also t- is more involved in um, labor disputes than it had been. It had been involved in labor disputes before the Civil War, but not on the scale it was. 1877, uh, in the big, big railroad strikes of 1877, the Army was largely um, neutral, but 
in the big disputes of 93 and 94, the Pullman strikes, the army is no longer neutral. The army is clearly pro-business, clearly anti-labor. And that leads to a lot of resentment among labor organizations of the period. And they believe, and you see a spate of, of articles written by army officers for professional journals about how we need to protect democracy against these communists, these labor problems, these troublemakers. And so the army is pretty clearly tilting in favor of big business as opposed to labor during this period. Um, and they're always involved in these, what the army called at the time, collateral duties, preserving national parks, um, um, scientific observations, the Weather Bureau as part of the army in its early stages. Uh, so they're doing all sorts of things in addition to uh, fighting. Uh, and that, again, that's one of the big points of my book that, that I'm not saying it's good or bad. You can make up your own mind whether it's good or bad, but they've done it. Historically, the army has done these things. Having participated in nation building in the 19th century um, in, in, on the American content, uh, continent, how did this experience prepare the um, regular army for American empire in the Caribbean and in the Philippines? Um, I guess I would say in some ways it prepared them very well. Uh, in some ways, the army didn't learn the lessons it probably should have learned uh, on the, the, the latter first. Um, the army had fought Native Americans for a century and a quarter, but never was army doctrine focused on anything other than conventional warfare. In the Philippines, we're faced with an insurrection. And so army officers who had fought Indians much of their adult lives are in the Philippines fighting, a, fighting a, an, an insurgency. But they had never really developed any doctrine um, for doing that. And so in some ways, they, they don't do very well at all. Um, they had mobilized, the army had mobilized several times for the Mexican War, for the Civil War. But when the Spanish-American War comes around and the army needs to mobilize, it's terrible. They do a terrible job of mobilizing. They should have known better. They had historical lessons they could have relied on, but they were terrible. On the other hand, one of the big functions of empire is governing uh, and um, 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 trying to 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 um, trying to provide services for the colonies. The army's pretty good at that. They had been involved in uh, civil projects again, almost from their inceptions. And so you get soldiers building all sorts of things in Cuba, in Puerto Rico, in the Philippines, designed to, to promote the American presence. Uh, so in answer to your question, there's some things it does pretty well. There's some things it doesn't do very well at all. Okay. Um, so after research and writing a history of the regular army, in the first 125 years of U.S. history, uh, what are any topics or issues, events that you think have been under-researched? Um, I mentioned one of them earlier in the Army's association with slavery. Uh, we don't really know, for example, some basic facts like, well, how many officers owned slaves? Now, Ty Smith, 
another historian is now working on that, but I think more needs to be done. What about this relationship between the army and slavery? And then now, because of advances in technology, historians can do things, well, not me, because I'm not any good at technology, but you can, you can use some of these new programs that we have to do things and to ask questions that at, at one time would just, it would be impossible. Um, and I'm speaking there of, of using this big data to, to know more about a couple of things. First, voting behavior in Congress on related military issues. We now have the technology. We should do a better job of being able to, 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 to really get, get the real story there. And then the backgrounds of enlisted personnel. Again, at one time it would have been possible, but with, technology we have today, we should have a better understanding of the Army's enlisted personnel, where they had come from, their, their, their lives in general. I think. Those are two I would, I would highlight, I guess. Okay, thanks. Um, so uh, I'd like to ask you the traditional last question they ask on the New Books Network, and um, that is, uh, what are you working on next or anything? Uh, yes. Um, and again, never ask a historian because they'll talk too long. It's a long story. I'll try to make it short as I can. I had been working on a biography of John Schofield, who I, uh, John Schofield was a Civil War general. He was Secretary of War for a year. Uh, he was commanding General of the United States Army from 1888 to 1895. He led a secret military mission to Pearl Harbor in the 1870s. Pearl Harbor, to discuss its potential defensibility should the United States ever acquire it. Anyway, I was working on a biography of John Schofield. I'd written 10 out of 14 chapters. And then another author, Donald Donald Conley, came out with a biography of John Schofield. And two of the chapters were were exactly the same title as I had chapters. I'm not, he didn't, it was not plagiarism. It was just, well, this is obviously what you call this chapter. Anyway, I said, okay, no biography of John Schofield. So I put it aside, did some other things. Now that I've finished this book, I'm going back to it, relooking at, at John Schofield in a, in a different way than, than Dr. Connolly did. And it, it's, it's not that Dr. Connolly's book is bad. It's just, I want to write a different biography. So. Yeah, well, thanks. It sounds interesting, and I look forward to seeing it when it when it's published. Um, so, I want to thank uh, Robert Worcester. Um, the book is uh, "The United States Army in the Making of America: From Confederation to Empire, 1775 to 1903," published by the University of Kansas Press.